Hi, my name is Kagan, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I wanted to thank Charlie for asking me to speak, and thank you guys for having me here. Um, it really is an honor when I get asked to come and speak, especially in places that I don't know, because you get to see different kinds of you know, places in recovery, and, and it's always still the same feeling wherever I go. You know, it's always love. It's always welcoming. I, I was nervous about showing up because I don't know anyone here, you know, and as soon as I got here, just engage in conversation, so thank you guys for that. Um, my sobriety date is May 19th of 2015. Um, I got sober when I was 21, which is kind of a weird age to choose to stop drinking, I guess, um, but it's just the way it worked out, and I do like to preface it always with, uh, I do have substances in my story beyond alcohol, um, keeping in the singleness of purpose. I'm going to keep most of my discussion to alcohol. Um, but substances are a big part of my story. And in talking with a bunch of you people, I've also realized that it's a big part of your story. Um, so I'll start at the beginning. I was born in a small town in Utah called Blanding. Um, anyone heard of Blanding, Utah? Really? <laughs> that never happens. No one ever says. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, sweet. So I was born in Blanding, Utah. Um, for those who don't know, it's a really small town. Um, you know, one stoplight in the middle of the town that blinks yellow. I think they, uh, McDonald's tried to come in at one point, and they definitely didn't allow it to happen type of place. Um, and my family moved to Phoenix when I was one. Um, my mom, me, my brother, and my mom moved to Phoenix when I was one. And what we were doing is we were following my birth father. Um, they were both hairstylists, and my dad was going to school out here. Um, and, and I'll try and kind of get through the beginning of my story a little bit quicker so I could save some time for the solution and what happened. Um, but when I was around four or five, my dad had overdosed, um, a heroin overdose. So he was part of us um, from the time my older brother was born to the time that him and my mom split. So they split, he relapsed, and at a young age, uh, he died to a heroin overdose. And the reason why I say that, well, there's, there's several reasons why I share that part, but the first is, is that I was introduced to addiction from a young age. Um, you know, when he died, my mom didn't sugarcoat it at all. It was, you know, I was five, so, but it was like your dad took too many drugs and it killed him. <clears throat> he hadn't taken drugs for a long time when you, when your kids were born, but he did and it killed him. So I kind of was aware, um, of the dangers of addiction, I guess, as a young age, you know, um. We moved forward, and, and my mom, it was me, my mom, and my brother, and uh, and it was a little rough. You know, it was just us three. A lot of money wasn't there. Um, she was struggling, but she always showed up for us. Uh, she She's always been my rock. She's always been solid. Um, you know, and then uh, comes a time when she meets my now stepfather, and uh, and from there, things started looking up, right? So, like, we moved to Phoenix. My dad died. We always struggled. We weren't in the best neighborhoods, anything like that. Um, she met the stepfather, and we moved a little bit more north. Um, we moved to Scottsdale. We had a house, you know. It, like, had a white picket fence out front. I had this cool new stepdad. Um, he played the guitar. Like, I looked up to him. Um, and things started coming together. Uh, and this is around the time that I took my first drink, Right? And, uh, and I hear a lot of times people share they had their first drink and there was this big aha moment. Like it was a big relief. They could breathe. They could, they could actually function. Um, and that wasn't my experience with my first drink at all. You know, it was uh, probably seventh grade. 
me and a couple buddies went and got a bottle. You know, you filled the water up of parents' liquor cabinet. Um, I later learned that liquor doesn't uh, freeze. So if you take it out of the freezer and you fill it up with water, your ass is going to get caught. Um, <laughs> that was a hard lesson. But nonetheless, you know, so we did that. I remember I did black out that first time, you know, and in a room like this, sharing something like that, like I was 13 years old and I blacked out the first time I drank, it's like common. It's like, yeah, okay. You know, if I say that anywhere else, maybe it is a little bit more, uh, more dramatized than we take it, but, but it wasn't bad in essence, you know, um, I somehow got home, my brother saw I was drunk, brought me to his room, made sure my parents didn't find out, um, woke up, no consequences, <clears throat> everything was fine, and that carried on for a little bit once, you know, every weekend or so. Um, moved on, and then uh, <clears throat> basically in summary, my little white picket fence scenario that had been created um, slowly started falling apart. Um, now, it's nothing that's crazy or traumatic or anything like that, but, you know, this life that had been built up that I was excited to be a part of, you know, started falling apart. My parents got divorced. Um, you know, I got my heart broken, the eighth grade heartbreak, um, you know, and, uh, and, and different things, various things happen like that. And so that's the first time that I went and sought a substance to put in my body with the intention of like changing the way I feel. Right before, it was like my buddies have some alcohol. Like, we're going to get drunk. I want to see what it's like. We had fun. It was whatever. I was happy going into it. I was happy going out of it. Um, this was the first time that I set out to seek something um, for a sole purpose of, like, getting me outside of my feelings. You know, getting me out of, outside of what was going on in my head. Um, and, and what that first was, was it was a soma, um, like a muscle relaxer. And I remember that's when I took it, you know, and it did exactly what I thought it would do and what I wanted it to do. You know, all of a sudden, all the pain that I was feeling, all the doubt, uncertainty of my future and all these different things, um, they went away, right? Um, so that kind of was my aha moment. And uh, I don't know if I ever decided, like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life or, like, if it was a situation where it was like, yes, I found it. Um, but it was positive and it was good. Um, so I started doing them more and more and more. And uh, and that went on for like a year, you know, and, and I got into sell, selling and I got into different things like that. Um, selling and that whole lifestyle is a big part of my story. Um, you know, I, I struggled even far into sobriety with shaking the want to be a part of the lifestyle. You know, um, I remember like four or five months sober sitting there and I had no desire to get higher to drink. Um, but I just wanted to like go rob somebody, you know what I mean? Cause I just felt like, like a little lame kid. Um, and, and the, it, what's crazy is I, I glorified that lifestyle more than I absolutely needed to. Um, no, I firmly believe that some people are born into, you know, a certain situation surrounded by certain demographics with a certain environment and they run to like, you know, the, the rough, like gangster lifestyle, based more out of a necessity, you know what I mean? Um, and for me, that, that definitely wasn't the case at all. You know, I, I just simply glorified it. Like, uh, when, when I first got sober, um, and I'm, and I'm in my treatment, you know, and, and I'm around all the guys, and I'm going to meetings and stuff, and everyone's asking me, like, where are you from? Where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm from Phoenix, you know, grew up in Phoenix streets. 
Like, I fucking grew up in Scottsdale. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I was just, if anyone's familiar with Scottsdale, like, I'm north of the 101. Like, you know? Um, I ended up doing some prison time uh, for, for my behaviors, you know? And for the first couple months, first year that I was in, in sobriety and in treatment, um, I told everyone that I did two years in prison. Like, yeah, I was on a yard for two years. You know, I literally did four months on a yard because I got my county back time just long enough to get a number and go out. You know, like I used to like did a two piece. Like, no, I did. I did four months, you know, so it just attributes to like me and my obsession. Right. Growing up with trying to identify as something that I'm really not, you know, trying to identify, trying to really find a name for myself and, and, and not even for everyone to look at, but like something for me to identify myself as, you know, because I was lost. Um, I resonate deeply with the spiritual malady part of this program. Uh, I resonate deeply and I know that it, it presents itself in various, various ways across, you know, this whole room uh, and different people. Um, but I just, I, I wasn't necessarily a kid that never thought that I fit in. Um, you know, I, I got along with everybody. I've always been able to communicate, and I've always been able to socialize and uh, and everything like that. But I just knew that there was something different with me, um, and I took pride in that. You know, I took a lot of false pride in like that there was something different. That um, I guess the best way I could describe it is I never saw anyone as my equal. You know, I was either better than you or you were better than me. Um, and, and there was just no way the rest of this world thought the way that I thought, because if they did, the world would be 100% different. And I used it to pit myself against anything and everybody consistently. Um, and, and I took pride in that. Like, and in retrospect, like looking at my mindset of the situation, of course I have clarity now. Um, but like taking pride in just being hurt, you know, taking pride in being that little rebel kid and like, you know, so I'll, I'll get further into that. Um, but yeah, so basically, you know, I, I dove deep into these somas. Um, and around the same time, so my uh, addiction, alcoholism runs through my family pretty rampantly. Um, my mom sat me down when I was like 12 or 13, um, me, my brother, and now my little sister, uh, and let us know, like, hey, kids, like, mom's been doing, he's, she's been taking far too many pills. She's going to be in her room for, like, three or four days. Do not come bother her. Do not come in. Don't let her come out, you know. Um, and at the end of those three or four days, she's going to be better mom for it, you know. Um, again, you know, I'm not necessarily shielded my whole life on what this situation is. And this is before I dive into, you know, my, uh, my active alcoholism. <clears throat> and so... I was introduced to the rooms from a young age. You know, there'd be times I'd be going to AA meetings with my mom at a young age, um, you know, and I'd be the one on the phone. You know, mom gave me the phone, so I'd shut up, and I'd be in the corner, like, just like, who the hell are these people, and what are they talking about? Um, but once I got into my disease, um, probably about six months to a year of consistently uh, indulging every day, um, I decided one day that I was going to try and not do anything. Um, you know, I woke up. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not today, Kagan. Like, I, you see where this goes. Like, you're not going to do it. And the truth is, is I couldn't. And not necessarily because of a physical addiction. I literally couldn't get throughout the day because I didn't see a point in not doing it. You know, I tried it again the next day. And I was like, it doesn't matter if there's a point. 
Um, you're just not going to do it. Prove it to yourself, kid. You know, and and I couldn't get through the day without doing it. And so it scared me because you know, at 13, 14 years old, I kind of had that clarity of like, this is a problem. Like I'm trying not to do it, and I keep doing it. So I woke my mom up one morning. I said, hey, I want to go to that meeting with you, you know, because I hadn't been in a while. Like, and I told her, like, I want to go to support you. Like, um, and she was, of course, thrilled. Uh, she really was pretty clueless to what was going on in my life. And, and I went to this meeting for the first time, uh, unbeknownst to my mother, but with the intention of listening for myself. Um, just to kind of see what it was. I was still, I, I, I act like, you know, I had all this clarity back then. I, that's the way I'm portraying it. It wasn't. I was curious at best. Um, and, and I went, and what I heard did scare me, right? So, so I heard, you know, the destruction, the losing of families, losing jobs, deaths, like all these things that everyone shared about. Um, and, of course, I couldn't relate to that, you know, because at 14 years old, my biggest problem was, like, my math homework and this girl that doesn't like me. You know what I mean? Um, but nonetheless, when they went on to describe the emotion that they felt, surrounding their disease um you know the now i know is restless irritableness and discontent um about the concept that even if we truly don't want to drink we still will no matter what consequences are stacked against against us you know and i heard that and i heard different variable things like that um and I got sober at like 13 or 14. And I think about it now, like if a 14-year-old came in here and like, and I would share, like Kagan alcoholic, like this little kid. And then I'd like share my, how my day was and like, you know, and then everyone ate it up and I ate it up. Um, but I just think it's ridiculous looking at it like completely. But nonetheless, you know, I, I stayed sober for like nine months and I got chips and I did everything. And I put the little key tags on my backpack walking around high school with some, you know, it's yeah um <laughs> and i took pride in it you know but nonetheless the i forget where it talks about it in the big book it might be the doc i think it's one of the stories in bill's story possibly maybe not i'm not a thumper but i know i know a little bit about it um but it talks about the concept of self-knowledge right um it talks about the guy the story of this guy who's like admitted to a hospital or something for his alcoholism um, and he's just bewildered at how he ended up here because it's a competent man. Um, and he goes before the doctor and he is extremely intrigued by their ideas of alcoholism. Um, you know, about the powerlessness and everything that we learn in these rooms and that it's a disease. And in fact, we actually don't have a defense unless we build one up. And it's, you know, all the things we learn. And he was super intrigued by the concept of like, you know, the, the phenomenon and craving and everything. Um, and pretty much he says, you know, now armed with this information that I have now learned about my disease, there is absolutely no way I'm going to allow myself to sink that low again. Um, and I paraphrase the hell out of that. I hope you guys can kind of understand what part I'm talking about. Um, but nonetheless, it's self-knowledge. And he said, you know, thanks for the information. I got it from here. And he took off and inevitably he ran into relapse. Um, I relate that part of the story to like what I did at this time in my life was like there is no way after coming in relating to your guys' emotions, hearing about your destruction and learning a little bit that I'm going to go out back out there and become one of them. You know, there's just no way like I, I'm too smart now at 14 years old. I had it all figured out. Um, and nonetheless, I left it and I did, you know, I did indulge after that. And I'll, I'll fast forward quite a bit. 
Um, you know, through high school, it was just normal stuff for a heavy drug user. Um, you know, drinking, party drugs, everything like that. Um, and then around 18 years old, I, I again, I was selling in my apartment, got raided. Um, you know, and I was charged with, they, they charged me with like 16 felonies. I was convicted of four. Um, I got some time. I did a bunch of county time, got out IPS, and then ultimately ended up on a yard. And in between that time of me being charged and me uh, actually hitting a yard, like my, uh, my drinking, like, and, and I literally mean my drinking hiked up to insane amounts. Um, you know, to the point where I, I'm hitting county physically withdrawing from alcohol. Um, and just really diving deep into it. And so I finally hit a yard, um, and I went to an AA meeting on that yard. And uh, I shared, you know, uh, I'm a short timer here. I'm afraid if I get out and I don't correct anything that I'm going to be right back. Um, and this guy, his name is Jeremiah. He was on the yard. He had been down for, I think, like seven years at that point. was finishing off on the low-level security. And he approached me after, and he... Um, and he asked if I would like him to sponsor me, you know. Um, and, of course, I said yes. And and that was the first time in my life that I really had an open mind to taking a look at these steps. Um, I had gotten sober before when I was younger, like I said, but there was absolutely no steps involved in that. It was just meetings and fellowshipping. Um, but... Again, looking down at 18 years old and seeing an orange jumpsuit on my body, right? Um, when that isn't what my life kind of path was, you know, by every right, I should have been in college. You know what I mean? I, I should, I had every opportunity to lead a successful life. You know, I, I had a uh, mom and dad that were willing to support me through this. You know, I had. I had good friends. I had opportunity for good friends. I had everything in front of me that pointed to like a normal life. You know, and at 18 years old, I'm looking down and seeing an orange jumpsuit. Um, and and it was just a huge eye-opener for me. Um, and it was the first time in my life that I really took a look at where I wanted to be. Um, you know, and so, so I worked steps. Uh, I got all the way to the fourth step. And then I got released. Uh, not 30 days later, and again, this is a part of my story that really goes into substances, I tried heroin and meth for the first time. Um, my whole life, I hadn't done heroin because it took my dad. You know, that was always my thing. I even, like, kicked it with dudes who, who, who were using and everything. You know, I, they could go use my car to pick up if they stole a bottle when they brought it back for me. You know, I was always drunk in the back seat, and they were driving because, like, they're more capable of driving than me and they're doing hard drugs you know um and so the reason why i say that is because i vividly remember um making the decision to use this substance for the first time because i wanted to see why my dad did it um and, and it's of course the irony there right everything that kept me away from this drug now became the sole reason why i was now doing it um, not sole reason, but the reason why I, the excuse I gave myself to try it. Um, and in retrospect, I'm extremely grateful for that transition from alcohol to the harder drugs, um, because it allowed me to like really nosedive down. You know, I, I, I firmly believe that if I had stuck with alcohol, I would still be miserable and drunk. Um, I really do, and, and I feel like that, that would have continued on for a long time. Um, 
you know, but meth and heroin, I, I couldn't handle it. I said it before, like, I'm not built for the streets, you know, as much as I'd like to think I was. Uh, so what ensued the next two years, right? Um, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, but just like overdoses, um, robbing, like, uh, just misery, like hurting my family, hurting everybody. And ultimately I ended up homeless in Phoenix for roughly eight months. Um, and then this is May of 2015, you know, we're, we're at what happened. Um, and nothing amazing happened. I didn't get this big inspiration to change. I didn't like have this light that told me like, I need to, I need to do better. There was no, uh, legal system intervention. There was nothing like that. Simply what it was, was like my main drug of choice at that time, uh, it was really miserable to be high on that drug and homeless in Phoenix in May with the heat just spun out. You know what I mean? Um, and I couldn't take it. So I heard about Prescott, Arizona. I heard that they had sober livings and treatment. I heard that they would give you a bed, and not only would they give you a bed, but they'd give you $60 a week to go grocery shopping. And that sounded like paradise to me. Like, you mean you're going to house me and then you're going to feed me and, and I don't got to do nothing but show up? So that's what happened. Um, like I said, nothing crazy. It was no big motivation. Um, I, I decided to not be homeless for a little bit. I decided to go and recharge so I can get back some you know, weight on me and I can get back you know, some oomph and I can go back to Phoenix and do, do it right this time. Like, I'm going to drink right this time. Um, now, the difference when I showed up <coughs> to Prescott, Arizona, as opposed to some of the places that I had been court-ordered to go to in Phoenix, um, well, I want to say that the biggest difference was my ability to listen a little bit more. Um, but I had court, been court-ordered to places like Co Crossroads or Casa Malagra, if anyone's familiar with Phoenix. Um, and basically, I'd show up to those places, right? Like court-ordered, my parole officer, my probation officer would say, Kagan, you got to go there. I'd show up. Um, I'd spend maybe like 15 to 20 days like kicking it, you know, and I'd look for somebody who, who kind of looked like they were the type of person I wanted to kick it with, like basically scumbaggy like me, you know, <laughs> and uh, which was a lot of people. Um, <laughs> and so we'd formulate a plan, right? We, we'd leave the place. And we'd go relapse together, and we would be, like, best friends for, like, three or four days. Like, that's my road dog. That's my ride or die. And then one day, like, he would turn right at the street, and I would turn left, and, like, I'd never see him again. You know? Um, and he'd call me in, like, two months, like, yo, Kagan, like, you got any? Like, no. Do you got any? No. And then, like, we'd hang up because we never had shit because I was a bottom feeder. Um, and, and that was a repetitive cycle, right? But I show up to this place in Prescott. Um, and there's there's a different atmosphere. Like I sit down in the first house meeting, and one dude's sharing about how he just did a fist step with his sponsee. I mean his sponsor, you know, and he just talked about some graveyard stuff that he's never talked about before. Um, and he feels like he's walking, you know, when he walks he feels lighter, you know, and that he cried and he felt a higher power's presence and like he, you know, um, another person was talking about how they just did a nine step amends with their mom who they hadn't spoken to in 10 years. And even though that nine step didn't go good, she didn't receive it well. And it ended in fighting. She, the, this man could be proud of what he did cause he kept his side of the street clean and he can move on from that. You know, another dude was talking about how he was sponsoring somebody for the first time and how he felt like he never had something to offer. And now this kid that he's sponsoring looks up to him like a God, you know? Um, 
and I don't know why well, I can probably assume about everybody, but like through our addiction and our alcoholism, we're thrusted into scenarios and situations which we're forced to adapt. Um, we get really good at it. Uh, whether it's through a form of manipulation to receive what we want, whether it's out of necessity because we're in an unsafe environment, whether it's with the family, our significant others, because we need to convince them that we're not drunk after a fifth of vodka, you know what I mean? But we we adapt and we're chameleons. And so I, I had really built up this skill at this point. Um, now I was in an environment where everybody was striving to work these steps. Um, I was in an environment where it was cool to be sober. Like, people were getting those 30, 60, 96 months. Um, and, and, like, people were proud. And, like, if you got a year, you were, like, the cool kid in town in Prescott, you know? And so I adapted to that, not because I felt like I needed to work steps or because I felt like I wanted to make my life better, but simply because I wanted to fit in with where I was, you know? Um, and I went out and I got a sponsor. It was just like the OG in town, you know what I mean? He had he had like over twenty years sober. Like he, everyone was, who is this guy? And I went up and I asked him because I was cool, right? Um, and it was at the time the worst decision I had ever made because he made me work. I was like, damn, that was a bad choice. But in retrospect, it was the best decision I could have ever made. Um, and I sat down with this man, and I had worked a one, two, and three before. But for the first time, he took the time to not only just allow me to say, I'm powerless, my life had become unmanageable um, because I ended up in prison, because I was homeless, because of all these external consequences. But he sat down and made sure that I became educated on what it meant to have alcoholism as a disease. Um, you know, the short of it. From my understanding, like the spiritual malady, mental obsession, physical craving, he really drove into my brain. Um, but the biggest thing that he was able to do for me was he was able to separate alcohol from my explanation of alcoholism. You know, up to this point in my life, I just did a lot of drugs and I drank a lot because, like, I made bad decisions and I was a. Uh, I'm going to try and cut back the cussing a little bit. Um, but because I was like maladjusted to life, you know, as the big book says, um, that I just couldn't make the right decisions, that I was defective, you know, that there was just something wrong with me and I was an idiot. Um, and, and that's like kind of what, what I landed on, that that's just the way it, would, it was always going to be. Um, I'm always going to make these bad decisions because I'm dumb. Um, and this guy sat down with me and uh, <clears throat> the simplest way he could explain it was he said, Kagan, what about those times when you were in those sober livings and you remained abstinent from alcohol for 30, 60, 90, and never made it in 30, 60 days? Um, how, what, what happened to you? Like what happened to your all around well-being and like your feelings and your emotions and internally? You know, I said, well, I, I went absolutely crazy sober. You know, abstinent. I went absolutely insane. I did not get better. In fact, internally, I got worse during those sprints of abstinence from substances. Um, externally, like, you know, my mom started, like, coming around to visit at the halfway house during visiting hours, and she'd be proud of me. You know, maybe I got a little construction job that I was able to pay the rent at my sober living. And, like, externally, things seemingly kind of built up a little bit, but internally... I got way worse when you took my substance away from me. 
And he said, take a look at that, Kagan. You know, you take the drugs and alcohol out of your life and you get worse. And you think that alcohol and drugs are your problem, you know. Um, and for me, that lit off a light bulb for the first time uh, in regards to this conversation. That it's not that I keep drinking and I keep using drugs. You know, it's how I feel when I am sober. That's my problem. Um, and, and he said, yes, that's alcoholism. You know, how you feel when you're abstinent from drugs or alcohol without a solution, without seeking, you know, spiritual solution through the steps and, you know, all this stuff. Um, and that really resonated. And, and to me, that was evidence that this was much more deep rooted than I just need to grow up, you know, um, that I just need to get a girlfriend and a job and like an apartment. <laughs> right. Because that was my stepdad's famous lines. Like, why don't you just get a job, Kagan? I'm trying not to cuss. <laughs> um, as we know, it doesn't work, right? And that gave me motivation. It was scary because for the first time in my life, I realized to the extent of how much this disease had a hold of me um, and how serious it was, that it was deeper than decisions. It was an internal thing that drove me to these decisions. Um, but in that same breath, I, I had a glimmer of hope from it, right? Because now I was no longer just dumb. Now I had the disease of alcoholism, and this man told me that there was a way out. Um, and that was the first time that I transitioned from, you mean I can't smoke weed and work 12 steps? To like, maybe if I'm lucky, I get to be sober for the rest of my life. And I remember having that profound thought of like, maybe if I'm lucky, I could I stay sober. Um, and I built off of that. And, and again, I'm making it seem like I was Mr. AA from the beginning. Like, I most definitely wasn't. Um, it took a lot, and my, my progression was very slow through these steps. Um, and, and I like to go through the steps a little bit. Uh, and my experience with each one, uh, you know, and we talked about my first, and, and it was cool. I understood. I'm powerless. I, I get what this disease is. I'm excited. Let's do it. Um, and then I get to my second step, and... I share this with a lot of people in the rooms. I, I, I I'm in common with a lot of people in the rooms with this belief coming to AA is that I wasn't necessarily atheist, but I was definitely agnostic. Um, I would argue with you sometimes that there, God wasn't real, so maybe a little bit atheist. Um, but there was just no way I was going to believe it. And the reason why I didn't is because my life was evidence that God or a higher power wasn't real. Where my life had taken itself from my eyes, if there was a higher power, then he sure as hell didn't, you know, care about me at all, you know. And if you believe in him, cool, like be happy with your little delusion and your little hymns and whatever you do. Um, but I'm not going to be a fool and believe in something that so blatantly doesn't exist for me. Um, so I get to my second step. And honestly, I'm kind of excited because I have, I have weird prideful, like in my past, I was pride about the weirdest stuff. Like I was prideful about going to prison. I'm prideful about not believing in a higher power, like all this stuff because I'm just pitting myself against the world. So I get to the second step and I tell my sponsor, I'm like, yeah, I'm with it. I'm with like, you know, the first step. I'm also with the fourth step and the fifth step, you know, but the second step stuff, like it probably isn't going to happen. So like if we can move on from that so we don't waste too much time and he let me know very eloquently that that's not how it works. Um, so I said, okay, well then, then I've shifted to, I'm going to 
prove to this guy that God isn't real. Like, that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to work a second step, and when we're done, he's not going to have a higher power. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's not how it went, but... <laughs> So he sat down with me, and, and like I said, I, was, I got kind of jazzed about it. I was like, I'm going to be the hardest sponsor you've ever had on this one. Um, and, and we had a conversation. We sat down to do it, and we had a conversation. And what it went like was he asked me if I've seen other people in the community who have long-term sobriety that I look up to, that I believe that their life is worth living, um, do they say they have a higher power? So yeah, everyone says they have a higher power. Um, everyone that's thoroughly worked the steps. Um, I said, do you believe that they're blatantly lying to you when they tell you that they believe in a higher power? So I don't think they're lying to me. I think they're unknowingly lying to themselves, but I do believe that they believe in this higher power. There's no doubt about that. Um, so he said, cool. What did they say that their higher power has done for them? Right, and I list off all these cool things that people talk about, like you know, guidance, um, love, unconditional support, you know, a helping hand. You know, some people have tough love, and just all these characteristics um, that I've heard about this higher power uh, that are positive. And so he said, "Yeah, no, that sounds pretty good." Think for a second. Take a higher power. If you had someone in your life that had all of those characteristics showing up for you, wouldn't it be cool? I was like. Yeah, it would be cool. You know, that would be awesome. That's exactly what I need because no one's ever. And I played the victim role. I lived a hard knock life in Scottsdale and like, <laughs> you know, and I did this whole thing. And he said, so it's safe to say that you hope that something can present itself in your life that does that for you. Uh, I said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm hope that would be cool. I would hope for something like that. And he said, boom, your second step was done. I got so pissed because he won, right? And I got mad. I was like, no, it's not. It's not done. It's not. He's like, no, you, you hope that you that higher power is real. So I didn't exactly say that, but I guess. And the point of that is that's where my second step started. Being tricked into hoping that a higher power was real. Um, and, and I share that because I know a lot of people struggle with that coming into this program. Um, and, and I struggled with it deeply and it's not like that hope blossomed into a beautiful relationship right away. Um, you know, over three and a half years later and I still have trouble with connecting with the higher power. Um, I'm better at trusting a higher power than I am with connecting with a higher power, like spiritually. Um, and it's something that I'm building and growing on, but today I have no doubt that something exists that's guiding me. Um, and it's evidence-based, you know, it truly is evidence-based at this point. I, I've collected a bunch of data over the past several years of me working a third step and giving up my will when I wasn't sure about it, something happening positively from it, looking back in retrospect and seeing what was working in my life then, you know, um, it got to the point where I could no longer deny or attribute it to coincidence. I would be stupid and ignorant to think that there was that many coincidences in my life as soon as I made the decision to hope for a higher power. Um, and I continue to grow with that, and sometimes it's a lot less, and sometimes it's a lot more. Usually it's uh, external power that gets in between me and that connection, um, You know, whether it's material things, money, romance, um, lust, or just anything, anger, resentment, you know, can de deter me from this relationship, but it, 
it has consistently been there the whole time. It's never ceased to exist. Um, so I'm forever grateful for that sponsor to be able to kind of navigate through my stubbornness um, to get me to a hope. And I heard it shared in a meeting a while ago. I say this every time. Um, but that if zero is indifferent, right? Zero is like you don't care to believe. You don't care to argue. Zero is indifferent. Negative is like... I don't know, like you believe in like the devil is like all being, I don't know what that'd be. Um, and then over here is like a belief in a higher power. All you need to be is one decimal point to the right of zero in order to start your, your venture, you know, and, and start your relationship with this thing. Um, so that was a really cool experience, you know, and, and coming up with the third step, and I'm going to try and kind of get a little bit quick because I want to talk about what it's like now, um, was action-based you know, I had to literally write out things that I knew for sure were in my higher power's will, like setting up me chairs before a meeting. Um, I was in treatment, and they made us do 15 resumes a day. So actually doing that instead of lying and just falling in line with things that I knew for sure were because I was confused what wasn't. Um, I'll fast forward, did a fourth step. Now I like to talk about my fifth step because, you know, I, a lot of people share about the experience of having this, like, amazing experience with the fifth step right like i just got back from my fifth step and i swear i'm walking on clouds and the world is a different color like no it's not like i don't know so that's what i was expecting right because i'm the type of kid that tries to create a spiritual experience through like a formulaic scientific approach like i'm gonna make this spiritual experience happen and i'm and i'm praying and like i look up a little bit to make sure that there's nothing going on that would invoke a spiritual experience like i put a lot of pressure on it um and so my fifth step was going to be my spiritual experience i had it planned um <laughs> for people who know who have experienced it you can't really plan that stuff um and so I shared my fourth step, I did my fifth step, did my graveyard list, my, my sex inventory, my fear inventory, and at the end of it, I felt really bad about the person I was. Um, and this isn't everyone's experience, but it was mine, that I, I just felt really bad about what I had just shared, and I didn't feel relieved from letting it off my chest. In fact, saying it out loud all in one sitting just made me truly realize like how far I had gone. Um, and I did my hour of meditation after that, and I cried for like 30 minutes. Um, not because I felt God's presence, not because, you know, I was walking on clouds, but I cried because I was sad about the type of person that I had become. Um, and I felt like I didn't do the step right. You know, I went back. I felt like I messed up. I even told my sponsor, I was like, we need to start over a step one. Like, I didn't have a spiritual experience. Um, and he said, yes, you did, you know, um. And that was the first time that I realized that a spiritual experience doesn't necessarily need to be positive in the moment. Um, but that realization and the motivation that came after it in and of itself was an experience ne necessary for me. Um, and, and I was able to catapult forward, and it's cool, and I did my hour, and I, I, I was ready to have my character defects, and then I asked for them to be removed. And then I got to 8 and 9, and it was really cool because 1 through 7 – or about me, you know, my resentments, my higher power, my powerlessness, you know, my, 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 all this stuff. I'm looking inside in one through seven, which is absolutely necessary. But now I got to get to the point where I turned, you know, it away from me and I got to go out and take a look at the world and what I could do and what I could do to make myself feel, to feel better about what I just revealed of who I was. Um, and now this ninth step, 
really was where I did start feeling a change, and I felt a closeness to my creator, as it says. Um, you know, my first amends I was going to do to my stepdad. Now, my parents got divorced. My stepdad and my birth mother got divorced. Um, but my stepdad adopted me when we were the, together, so he was my legal parent my whole life. You know, and like I said, I was a little wannabe thug, so I'm walking around like, you ain't my dad. Like, you know, just like, just living this life that I wanted to live. Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, I'm also like, being sad because like I don't have a father to raise me. So long story short, um, I go and I go to my sponsor and I'm like, hey, before I left, I stole 20 bucks from my pops. Like I'm going to give him the 20 bucks and he's just going to be so happy. Um, and he kind of stopped me and he was like, wait, you're going to give this man 20 bucks as an amends when his whole life, all he wanted to do was show up for you as a father and all you did was deny him and run around talking about you don't have a father. Um, you know, this thing that you so desperately needed your whole life, this father figure, this man that you talked about not having and like all this stuff sitting there knocking at your front door and you're too dumb to see it. So you push him away and all he wants to do is be your father and show up for you. And you're going to go to this man and give him 20 bucks and say sorry. You know, and I was like, yeah, you might you might be right about that one. Um, and I and I sat down with him. And I honestly think he was expecting the 20 bucks, um, but I sat down and I told this man, and I gave him amends for not allowing him to be the man that I so desperately needed throughout my life. You know, not allowing him to show up for me in a way that he had no obligation to, but so desperately wanted to. Um, and, and needless to say, it was an amazing moment. Um, you know, what I got from that, and that's when I first realized that I get more out of not doing, not drinking from this program. You know, at first I thought it was about not drinking, you know, and getting a job and, and this and that. Through this program, I got my father, you know, um, that I never knew was right there. You know, and today he calls me every day and we have an amazing relationship and he talks about my business and we talk about women and we talk about football and gambling and like the shit that father and son talk about, you know, and literally through a ninth step, I gained a father. Um, and that's one of the best things this program has given me. Um, the same feeling was replicated through a 12th step, um, and helping other guys, you know? And so I, I like to go through the steps cause I solely attribute where I am today because of the 12 steps. Um, solely attribute it to the 12 steps. Meetings are awesome. Fellowship is awesome, and it's definitely a large portion of what I do. Um, but the 12 steps is what brought me to a higher power and cleaned out my gutter, you know, of where I was and brought me to where I am today. <coughs> and today, life really is amazing. I know a lot of people say, uh, I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. And, like, I don't really buy into that because, like, I get dream pretty wild you know what I mean and I definitely don't have a Lamborghini out in the parking lot right now and I don't live in a mansion you know um <clears throat> but what I do like to say is I have a I have a life that I never thought that I would receive and I have a life that I never thought I would deserve um you know and things have kind of happened for me uh pretty quickly materialistically in my sobriety um some beautiful beautiful experiences um I, I've come to the opportunity, you know, I own a treatment center in Prescott and I get the opportunity to show up for guys who are going through what I went through, 
You know, and, and I get to be that difference and provide a setting that is just beautiful for these guys to be able to really dig into what they do. Um, so things have happened for me. Um, but what I get out of sobriety the most is that complete perspective change. Um, I don't know if anyone relates to my drug of choice of methamphetamines in this room. Good. <laughs> uh but it brings you to a really, really dark spot um, mentally. You know, forget the environment and the predicaments you get in, but you get very, very dark mentally. Um, conspiracy theories, right? <laughs> there it is. Um, like, I don't know if you guys have seen Book of Eli, the movie. So that was like my fantasy was like anarchy and like this world is so evil and if you don't see it then you are ignorant and blind and you're a sheep. You know what I mean? And like you going to work nine to five and raising kids and the family is just all a delusion and I'm glad that you're not smart enough to see it because you get to enjoy happiness. But I see it because I'm smart and there's no way I get to enjoy happiness. I'm just going to get my piece of the pie and that's the way it is. Um you know, that, that's my spiritual malady manifesting itself in a very dark way with the help of a substance. But I really bought into that. I bought into, you know, uh, cops are the worst. You know, they're killing people. And, like, I bought into the government. is just, just this whole – I focused on evils in life, right? Today, that couldn't be more opposite. You know, I think it's pretty gangster that at any given moment, like I own a home. If I call 911, someone's going to show up with a gun to protect my property. Like, that's pretty fucking gangster. Um, you know, the government, whatever, I still kind of have my things about that. But I, <laughs> I would be so lucky to stay sober, meet a woman, marry her, have beautiful kids, support them, bring them up through life, and, and die old. You know, like that sounds beautiful to me. Um, a nine to five, well, you know, I, I of a sorts have one right now. I go into the office. I do my work. I come home, you know. Um, and the difference is, is I have genuine happiness where I'm at with that. And I don't think I'm a sheep. And I don't think I became part of the delusion of society. I think that I chose to look at the good and it started from within myself. Um, again, thanks to these steps and this work and this program, uh, it's cool. Sobriety has become less and less about not drinking more and more about quality of life. Um, the obsession was removed a long time ago. Uh, the obsession was removed a long time ago, you know, and ever since then I, I continue to do this work so I can continue to enjoy what I have. I can continue to explore different things and show up and have experiences, and uh, and it, it's a blessing. Um, I think that's all my time. It is eight on the dot. So thank you guys again for having me here.